This is DCFN Newswire. Hello and welcome to the best of Newswire. My name is Tomas Suglos and we'll be hearing work by Stephen Murphy, Clara Hickey, Dan O'Connor, Andrew Byrne, Andrew Ralph and myself. But first we'll hear an interview with Gavin Riley from Today FM. Uh, well, well, funnily enough, uh, Stephen, it is, still seems to be the case that, you know, as of a week ago, there were uh, almost no question marks uh, over the political handling of this whole uh, affair, that although people were uh, very much aggrieved at how Morris McCabe alleged that he had been treated, that there was no question marks about the, uh, how it had been handled by ministers or whether they had done the right thing, whether they had shared the right information at the right time, or whether they were misleading people by giving false accounts of what they had known. Uh, but the way it's exploded over the last couple of days is really quite extraordinary. Uh, to try and give it some sort of a potted summary, last Friday morning, Morris McCabe's solicitor uh, revealed for the first time that, in fact, his client had met with Catherine Zappone and that Catherine Zappone was fully aware of the alleged smear campaign against Morris McCabe, including the role played uh, by an allegation of false sex abuse, which was on the files at Tutsla. Now, she released a statement shortly after that, albeit uh, from Seattle in the United States, where she was away for the weekend, But so we weren't able to, to get hold of her immediately. But she did release a statement saying that, yes, she had met with the McCabes and that she had kept relevant government colleagues informed at all times. Now, that was news to a lot of other people because, as far as we knew, no other Cabinet colleagues were aware of this at all. Uh, but she appeared to be implicating that the Taunashta, the Justice Minister, Francis Fitzgerald, and indeed the Taoiseach, Enda Kenny, had some knowledge of this whole trail of events. We then heard from spokespeople for both of those people, both the Taoiseach and the Taunashta, who said, yes, they were made aware that Catherine Zappone was meeting uh, Maurice McCabe, but didn't know any of the circumstances behind it, didn't know why, didn't need to know why, and were perfectly happy to let the matter lie. Um, that seemed to uh, allow the whole thing to lie again. Both Mars, uh, both the teachers and Tonish have said that the first they had actually become aware of any uh, Tuesday role in the smear campaign was through that extraordinary primetime programme that was broadcast last Thursday night. Um, then on Sunday we had Miho Barton alleging that in fact the Tonishta was briefed the day previous by her own party. That is still an ongoing route that hasn't yet been diffused. Uh, and we had Enda Kenny saying that uh, Catherine Zappone had indeed uh, called him up to say that she was meeting Morris McCabe uh, and that he was perfectly happy with that. He simply told her to take good notes. Catherine Zappone then comes back from the United States and says, actually, no, I didn't tell Enda Kenny personally because my officials told his officials. As they say, my people talked to his people. But she says she had never picked up the phone and told Enda Kenny that they were having a meeting, which then cast doubt over Enda Kenny because how could he possibly go on radio and give an account of a conversation he said he had had with another minister, which turned out to be completely untrue because they'd never spoken. And, and that is, becomes a significant difficulty because ultimately it is that that casts further aspersions and casts doubts over Enda Kenny's future leadership because while Enda Kenny has since revised and apologised for that kind of statement, ultimately that's where the seed is sown, Stephen, because it leads you to the conclusion... If Enda Kenny is prepared to go on radio and give an account of a phone call that in fact never happened, it raises questions as to whether other ministers can believe him when he gives accounts of other conversations in future. And, and that, as we stand this lunchtime, is the concern of the Independent Alliance because they're not sure if they can believe Enda Kenny in future either. Yeah, I think one of the bizarre uh, summaries of it was a refusal of a meeting that never took place, which mm. uh, seems quite bizarre. Uh, we also don't know exactly what was said during that conversation 
between the Taoiseach and Children's Minister Catherine Zabone. The Taoiseach says the meeting between her and Sergeant McCabe was private and none of the serious issues were discussed. But now Minister Zabone has told the doll she did discuss the allegations with the Taoiseach. So something's not adding up here. Yeah, what we had last night in the doll was uh, what was uh, possibly optimistically titled Statements of Clarification on Statements. Uh, so you're, you're meant to be giving statements where you clarified your earlier statements. And that should have been the perfect opportunity for the government to get its story straight, to iron out all of the apparent inconsistencies where all of these things were, were ironed out once and for all and made clear in the public eye. What you had was Enda Kenny standing up at the start and said, yes, Captain Zappone came to me and told me about some Tusla angle uh, to the story of Maurice McCabe or how it was all treated, um, but I didn't know any of the finer details. Fifteen minutes later, Captain Zappone stands up and says, in my discussion with the Taoiseach, I told him that Tusla had an alleg- a false allegation of sex abuse against Maurice McCabe. Now, that goes far further than the Taoiseach had ever admitted before. The Taoiseach then uh, reconciles his story to that of Catherine Zappone and says, actually, yes, I was made aware of a false allegation, but I didn't know any of the other details. Um, and then Enda Kenny, at the end of last night's Q&A session, is finally asked, when were you first aware of the false allegations against Maurice McCabe? And he goes back to his original story and says, after prime time last Thursday night. Now, that, that can't be true because he can't have been told that Tusla had a false allegation against Maurice McCabe on Tuesday morning and yet only find out that there were false allegations against Maurice McCabe on Thursday night. It's a story that doesn't make a huge amount of sense and that ultimately then further subtracts from the credibility uh, of, of the Taoiseach. It, it, it means that even when this particular scandal uh, might clear, when these storm clouds might pass, that you might still be looking at a situation where the Taoiseach could be perhaps untrustworthy on other issues and, and that ultimately is what's leading to the current cold feet on the part of the Independence Alliance and what's leading to Fine Gael backbenchers calling for an immediate plan as to when Enda Kenny's going to move on. There's also a major major question mark over Catherine's opponent's meeting with uh, Maurice McCabe and what Enda Kenny subsequently promised her about the commission of inquiry. Yeah, this, this is uh, perhaps a little bit uh, d- difficult to try and explain the nuances of, but I'll try and do it as best I can. Enda Kenny, uh, according to the current tale of affairs that he has now put out, says that when he went to the cabinet meeting on Tuesday, that all he would have been aware of is that uh, the Garda, former Garda press officer Dave Taylor said that he had been explicitly told to uh, spread amongst the media some specific but un- unnamed allegation of criminal misconduct. The teacher doesn't know what allegation that is. All he knows is that Dave Taylor said he was told to spread some unstated criminal act. It could have been a parking ticket. It could have been not having a TV license. You know, no, no one knows what that might have been at all. Catherine Zappone comes to him and says that she's aware of um, Tusla allegations of, uh, false Tusla allegations of sex abuse against Maurice McCabe. And somehow the Taoiseach is able to put two and two together and say, false allegations, oh, that must be the criminal complaint. And then specifically tells Zappone, don't worry about it, it's already contained in the terms of reference that are about to be discussed. And that's, that's a leap of faith that it doesn't appear the Taoiseach was entitled to make given the allegations or the information that he says he had at his fingertips at the time and that is something that's been taken up by the opposition party leaders this afternoon and not really conclusively answered but something which is probably likely to be parked until Enda Kenny meets with the independent ministers this afternoon. I suppose being kind this is extremely sloppy politically the whole affair at worst it's a series of events and statements which seem to be blatantly misleading and implausible Mm. either way Enda Kenny's credibility seems to have been significantly damaged by this uh, we heard Noel Roth yesterday talking about a timeline for his departure. So do you think that's increasingly likely now? 
Yeah, I certainly do think that. In fact, uh, you know, we had leaders' questions in the Dole there earlier this afternoon, and um, a few observers were remarking that while well, in the last couple of days the atmosphere around comments by Enda Kenny has been quite raucous, then in fact this afternoon it felt almost quite flat, that there was no energy in it, and perhaps that might be because they already feel that Enda Kenny's game is up, that in effect he has already handed in his, uh, his, his resignation and that he's only serving out his notice really at this stage. Um, certainly that there, there is now, I think, a growing body of people who say that the Taoiseach has... He's had a very good run. He's led the, the country through an awful lot of difficult things. He has led uh, Fine Gael from very poor days to very great ones. Uh, but that things are, are now beginning to implode a little bit on him and that effectively they might allow him just almost as a, a final victory lap to take the tour to Washington next month to meet with President Trump in the Oval Office. But that after that, the game is really up and that ultimately uh, their attentions are already turning a little bit to a successor. Now, sometimes... That can be a bit dangerous. Enda Kenny has been written off plenty of times before, and people have said that he's never going to come back from things. Um, if attention is already turning to who's going to replace him, perhaps attention might be torn away from how exactly are you going to prize Enda Kenny out of office. And that might be dangerous because he may well have very little uh, you know, intention of going anywhere other than staying in the Taoiseach's office for a couple of years. But certainly the vibe among Fine Gael backbenchers is that they feel this game is already up and they're now looking towards uh, the forthcoming election about who might be replacing him. Yeah, we've heard Micheál Martin accuse, suggesting that Enda Kenny lied to him about this matter. Fine Gael sources are reportedly putting pressure on him, and the Independence Alliance seems to be dismayed by the whole mm. revelation. So uh, today there is going to be a vote of confidence in the government. How do you think that's likely to play out? Uh, I think it's, it's likely to scrape by for the moment, but it does mean that uh, the Taoiseach will have to at least get the short-term uh, support of his Fine Gael colleagues, and he's also going to have to get the short-term support of his Independence Alliance colleagues. Now, he's, he's due to meet both of them later today. He's meeting the Independence Alliance at 4 o'clock. They are among the people who have serious reservations that if the Taoiseach can go on radio and give an account of a conversation that never happened, that whether they can actually trust their day-to-day dealings with them. And I think that that is a, a reasonable question and it's something that they're going to demand some serious assurances on. Um, and then likewise, when he goes to the Fine Gael backbenchers, he's going to, if not uh, outline some kind of timetable for moving on, he's going to have to win back their trust because the Taoiseach story has changed so many times over the last couple of days that fundamentally a lot of his, his, the trust that they had in him has now been seriously undermined. And, and bear in mind, again, as I, as I said from the outset, a week ago there were no questions about the political handling of all of this. Twice in the last couple of days we have lurched towards the possibility of the government collapsing and a general election being called. It all goes to underline the fact that if Andy Kenny doesn't want to leave Fine Gael into the next election, he's going to have to stand aside very soon because you never know how many days it might take for the government to fall apart. You can go from very plain sailing to extremely choppy waters in just the course of a couple of days. DCFM Newswire. Get involved in the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter at DCFM News. Welcome back to Newswire. Many of you might have seen the somewhat patriotic video be doing the rounds on social media today in a bid to get Ireland to host the Rugby World Cup in 2023. We have Adele Mitchell, a spokesperson from Falter Ireland on the line, to tell us a bit more about it. Hi Adele, how are you? Hi Clara, how are you doing? So what exactly are what exactly is Ireland doing um, in a bid to host the Rugby World Cup in 2023? Well, first of all, we're absolutely delighted to be involved in the 2023 Rugby World Cup bid process. As you mentioned there, we it was announced today that we're through to the candidate phase alongside France and South Africa, and we're delighted to be supporting this bid. In terms of 
fault Ireland's involvement from a tourism perspective, we're very much involved in bidding for these types of events and similar types of sporting and cultural events to try to bring these kind of events to Ireland because they can deliver a significant amount of overseas visitors to Ireland, um, both in terms of the the technical staff, travelling supporters, etc. Um, and in conjunction with the 2023 World Cup bid, it's important to say that Ireland's no stranger to hosting international events. We have a long history of hosting events from tall ships to Basel Ocean Race, Tier d'Italia, American football. And we have a long pipeline of events as well that have been secured for Ireland in the coming years. In fact, um, in particular relevance for the 2023 Rugby World Cup bid, it's important to note that the Women's Rugby World Cup will actually be held in Ireland next year as well. Um, and that's in August next year, uh, 2017, between Dublin and Belfast. And what's particularly important about that, whilst being a standout event in its own right, um, bringing 12 international teams um, to Ireland, is that the decision for the Rugby World Cup 2023 bid won't have been made until November 2017. So we have time next year to showcase the best of our hosting ability and our expertise and history in hosting events as part of the 2017 Rugby World Cup as well. So it's a really exciting time for Ireland in terms of bidding for and securing international events for Ireland. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. We're very excited about it. And what do you think Ireland's chances are for holding the holding the Rugby World Cup as seeing as France and Africa have already held the World Cup before and as well as holding the Irish uh, or the Women's Rugby World Cup? Do you think this will aid to it? Uh, well, I suppose it's important to say that we're still very much in the bidding phase. We're now just true to the candidate phase alongside uh, France and South Africa. So there's another year of hard work there involved in working with the decision makers, World Rugby, in going to the next stage of the bidding phase, addressing their various queries and such. Um, But we feel certainly that we're we're in with a strong chance. Um, However, we are alongside some strong competitors there as well. Um, But certainly with with the vast amount of experience that Ireland has in hosting international events with some of the events I mentioned there, and also the long pipeline of events, um, we feel we're in a, we're in a strong position um, alongside some, some strong candidates there as well. Now, with regards to Tourism Ireland, if um, Ireland were to host the Rugby World Cup, do you think it would just be the areas where the stadiums are in Ireland that would be uh, would feel an increase in tourism, or do you think that all of Ireland would uh, feel an increase in it? Uh so, Fault Ireland is the is responsible for um, bidding for um, international events for Ireland. So, we have a, a dedicated unit within our team here. Um, and certainly, when we're looking at international events in terms of bidding for them, we would certainly feel that the the impacts for those types of events are, are not just um, in terms of people travelling. Um, but they also bring their travelling supporters and friends, etc. Um, so in terms of the stadiums that were mentioned there, there's a long list of 12 match venues. Obviously, that will be that will be um, reviewed by World Rugby and various others. So but certainly we feel that with the level of tourists and overseas travellers that would come into the country, that that would have a 
significant economic impact for the for the country as a whole. And obviously, we would be encouraging people to stay longer, extend their stay. Um, it's uh, it's an all Ireland potential a bid, so both north and south. So there are opportunities there for visitors to to travel around the various areas of Ireland, from the Wild Atlantic Way on the west coast to Ireland's ancient east on the southeast there, and obviously our capital of Dublin as well has much to offer um, travellers and supporters for these kinds of events. And uh, do you think that um, the government would put in more money if we were to win this bid? Do you think they would put more money into tourism coming up to uh, the actual World Cup itself into Ireland? That's a that's a difficult question to to answer at this stage. What I can say is that we have a we have a team here fully committed to uh, to developing tourism and the projects that we have there, and obviously fully committed to uh, bidding, uh, identifying, and hopefully securing further events to Ireland. So it's always very much in in partnership with our stakeholders and obviously our our government and our our. Um, our stakeholders are always very keen to see additional visitors to Ireland, which can drive that additional economic impact as well. Thanks a million for that, Adele. Uh, hopefully we'll be speaking to you soon and best of luck with everything. Thanks very much. Lovely. Take Thank care. You. Bye. First, the bill you are proposing, should it go on to be passed, this would make assisted suicide legal in Ireland. Exactly how would this bill go about legalising this at first? Well, what it is, is it, it, I, I should say, first of all, it, the bill proposes to introduce legislation, um, if you like, recognise the right of clearly consenting adults, I want to make that quite clear, who are enduring intolerable physical suffering to seek medical help to end their own lives. And we're talking here, the name of the bill is Dying with Dignity. Um, and that the bill was inspired by the late Mary Fleming, as you may have known, and um, um, Tom Curran. Um, this legislation has passed in many countries uh, in, in the world um, and I think that um, we need to look compassionately on people who are terminally ill, terminally ill uh, who, whose end of life is in sight within a, a reasonably short period of time and who are in insufferable pain. So that's the objective of the bill, uh, to go before the doll as soon as we can, which we believe it will. And we're looking for a reasonable and a compassionate debate um, and let's see how it goes. But I, I, you know, opinion polls across the country are shown over the last number of years that well over 60% of people think that if people are in insufferable pain, insufferable pain they shouldn't have to uh, endure that suffering if, they, if there's an inevitable end anyway in a short period of time that they're going to die. Of course, yeah. And you mentioned that the opinion polls are high and... Uh People are having to go to places at the moment where it is legal. Switzerland yes. is one of the places normally mentioned. Has anyone actually uh, come up to you uh, personally or have you heard case of people looking for this legislation to be introduced or something like oh, this? Oh, absolutely. We're getting, we're inundated. The office staff are telling me since we came back up again over the last year when I introduced it in the Dáil. Uh, we've been speaking to many, many people, some of them ill, some of them not ill. Uh, but some of them, for instance, it's coincidentally, you should ask me, I, I was speaking to a chap who's a lorry driver yesterday. He was telling me that uh, he wouldn't have thought much about it until his brother died of cancer, throat cancer. There, he said, last year, he said, and the absolute agony and pain he went through, he said, for seven weeks before he died, he said, was unbelievable. Where even on high doses of morphine and painkillers, 
uh, it couldn't relieve the pain. And he said, nobody should be allowed to uh, die like that. And I think the interesting point is that you and I have the right to a quality of life and, uh, you know, and we deserve it and we expect it but and, and a dignity in life. But we should also have a dignified death. We should have a dignified death. And I think that's what it's about. And I, I think um, um, people need to look at this, that... Are, we don't have a right to say to someone who's going to die and who's in intolerable suffering, oh, you must suffer on mm-hmm. and uh, you'll die in pain and that's it, but you're going to die anyway. Okay. And of course, at the moment, euthanasia is uh, illegal in Ireland. It's seen as a crime. Does the current version of what uh, you're proposing at the moment, are the circumstances in which this will be permitted and when it is not, are they clearly outlined? And if so, could oh, you tell uh, me a bit about that? Absolutely. And maybe if I could very briefly go through it with you, what, what it means is that it would have to be a consenting adult over 18 years of age. Um, for instance, and I suppose the best way to do it, to simplify it, even though it's not simple as it would sound or, or, or reads, that you go to your doctor, you have some pain, maybe your doctor sends you to a specialist. The specialist says, for instance, I think you need to go and see an oncologist. You have cancer, right? You go to this oncologist and they, they recommend some treatment for you. Um, after a period of time, they tell you, look, this is not working. It's inoperable. Um, you have a short period of time to live. Uh, no matter what we do, um, you're going to die. Now, that's fine with some people who want to battle out life and they, have, and they have a right to do that. But when the specialist will say to you, look, you're going to be in insufferable pain and intolerable pain, well, what happens with this bill is then that the oncologist would have to make that diagnosis, but another oncologist would have, two oncologists, for instance, if it was cancer, would have to come with the same diagnosis that you're terminally leaving a short period of time to live. Also, a psychiatrist would have to acknowledge that you're fully capable and conscious uh, uh, that you signed this and you want to do it. And by the way, you can withdraw at any stage. And I think that you can't make it any clearer than that. And by the way, it's interesting to know that if you go across Holland and the countries that uh, uh, parts of America, states in America, uh, Switzerland and so on, there is not even one case of mistreatment. There's not one case right across, which is astounding, of anybody being forced to uh, take their own lives, anybody being coerced into it, because all the the checks and balances are put in place. And in this bill, there's a lot of checks and balances. And again, essentially, it does come down to the individual who is competent and and a sentient adult anyway, who says, look, this is my right. I don't want to live. I don't want to be inflicting pain on my family, my friends, my loved ones, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever. And uh, uh, I have this right. And it's interesting that, like, you and I in the morning can commit suicide. And there's a complexity of reasons as to why people commit suicide. And we would all wish that people would not commit suicide. But that is not a crime. Yet you can be terminally ill and you cannot be helped to end your life. That doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so you mentioned there, you uh, just to reiterate what you said, but you mentioned that should this go ahead, there has to be a case where uh, oncologists make the diagnosis, a psychiatrist makes sure uh, yes. that you're in the right frame of mind. So is there definitely enough conditions at the moment that we can be sure that there isn't a case of, say, someone not being in the right frame of mind and maybe being exploited or any cases of coercion? There is definitely enough here to say... Well, well I think so, because if you look at Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Switzerland and so on, there's no indication there at all from anybody that anybody has been coerced and like you 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 have to remember like this we're talking about adults here we're not talking about children we're not talking about the elderly very elderly people who may uh, 
may not be fully sentient as to what they're about. We're talking about competent adults like you and I as we're speaking to one another now. And um, I think that um, um, one way or another, I think that it's a matter of time right across Europe and the world, I think, where people will be able to make that decision that they don't want to live on because they're terminally ill. And like, if you think about it, um, you know, um, um, like you're, in, you're terminally ill, You've six months left to live, three months left to live, a year left to live. And they tell you, look, um, you have to go through with this pain. That doesn't make sense to me. And by the way, one of the things I forgot to say is that a detoured independent witness uh, would, would be a non-benefactory, if you like, of, this, uh, of the state. And uh, at all times, like all of the safeguards would be monitored by the doctors and uh, by the specialists for that person. And again, I can only say if you go to Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Switzerland, and wherever else it is, there's not even one case that, 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 um, um, that whatever you call it, that anybody, that any vulnerable people or anybody has been coerced into ending their lives. And I think this, this, this warrants um, debate and it warrants um, a sensible debate and it warrants this to be heard and let people put amendments, let them put their arguments for or against it. But look, you know, I, I still think um, that uh, we're reaching a stage now where like, we have to think about the individual themselves, what they think and should they be in control of their own body if there's an inevitable end to it over a short period of time and the in, in, intolerable pain. Uh, you know, I think uh, people right across the world are beginning to realise that in many countries where opinion polls are all shown that people should have a right to a dignified death as well as a dignified life. Okay, so yeah, in other countries, yeah, there's very positive indicators. The opinion polls are positive and there does seem to be a stringent set of circumstances there. You were quoted recently saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're hoping for a debate in the doll where religious and moral issues be put to one side and people think about the indiv- individual. Thinking about the individual is all well and good, but is it might be a little unfair to ask this of your fellow TDs when morality is something that is generally very strongly linked to an issue like this. Well, no, I, I, th- I think it's a very good point you make. I mean, um, there is a religious connotation there with very many people. If you, you know, like this, uh, um, God made you and God will take you away. But like I myself am not religious, but let's talk about that for a second. That if this God is a caring and loving God, I personally don't think, and if, if there was a God there, which I am an atheist, but if there is a God there, I don't think a God, a God who would have made us in his own image and likeness would like to have us suffer. I don't think so. I wouldn't see the point in that. And I don't think that uh, that would be the case. Um, Maybe religions on earth here may very well say, oh, yeah, that is the case. You should suffer on and die. But if you if if we're if we believe or those of us, those who do believe in a compassionate and just God, I don't think that God would want uh, the people that he would put on earth or wherever he put them to be suffering. Of course. Uh, intolerable suffering. So this is why I say that, you know, this is beyond religion. It's beyond uh, m- uh, uh, morality, if you like, in the, in the sense that we cannot, we should not, you and I or everybody else should not say, oh, there's some chap in Cork or some chap in Dublin who's terminally ill, oh, well, he's just going to have to die and suffer. I think that person himself or herself should be able to make that choice. Okay, let's just move on. Let's say um, this is put forward, uh, just talking about maybe the people's opinion. Uh, Of course, 69% of Irish people in the recent poll would be in favour of this, but there is still that minority that are saying they oppose this. Should this advance any further? Are you expect, first of all, are you expecting much public backlash? And 
there has been similar kind of changes uh, being proposed. For example, the repeal of the eight campaign is just one example. Yes. But are, are you afraid that uh, the figures from the recent poll suggest there is enough support for this, but are you worried that we are asking for too much change too quickly, if you know what I mean? Well, I, I think, you know, it's not a question of change. I think change can be good if it's proper and right. Like the marriage referendum was only clear and right that two people who love one another, for whatever sex they come from, they should be able to get married and live together. And I think that was right. And I think the Irish people were compassionate there and they saw that. It's like divorce. Uh, we, there was a realisation, Rich, that some people um, are not compatible in spite of all the promises they make and the, with the best will in the world and uh, all of the love they may have had for one another, that we, we could not, it, was, it would, would not have been right to, keep, to have two people to, to be forced to live together who could not even maybe reach a stage where they could tolerate one another. I think it's the same here. I think change can be difficult for people. But I do think that, and I have come across, by the way, some people terminally ill, and I've seen some terrible suffering. And I've met people who have witnessed some terrible suffering, some of them very religious people who have said, oh, my God, this should never be allowed. This should not happen. And I suppose, you know, if we think about it, that uh, at the end of the day, it may very well affect all of us. Some of us may die suddenly. Some of us may die without any pain. We may, may, may reach a great age where we may die uh, nat- a natural death. But there's a high percentage of people uh, um, who suffer intolerable suffering uh, you know uh, multiple sclerosis and uh, uh, cancer are two examples and I think that this is where compassion has to come in we have to be able to kind of consider that individual not consider the wider view of people and it's interesting that the example I gave you of that lorry driver that chap would have been a chap who would, would say oh no I wouldn't agree with that until he saw how his own brother died where he saw his own brother dying, um, twisting and turning in the bed we, day after day after day, and they say to the doctors, the doctors giving him morphine loads. No, he he wouldn't. He didn't die. Uh, he couldn't die for he was a strong man, but he had to go through that pain uh, in a coma for six weeks with all of that suffering, and then die. That doesn't make sense, and I think that's where the compassion comes in from. And I think it's not only compassion for the people that might have to vote on it, but the general public need to think about. Uh, offering some compassion to people who will be in that position and they may be in it themselves at some stage. Okay, I'm afraid we've run out of time but Minister John Halligan, thank you very much for joining me. A pleasure. Thank you, take care. Take care, bye-bye. Last night a plane carrying 81 passengers and crew went down over Colombia including a squad of footballers carrying players that were due to line out for Chapaquense against Atletico Nacional today in a finals game. Journalist Ewan Marshall joins me now. Ewan, how are you? Considering the circumstances, not bad. Very busy day today. Uh, yeah, unfortunate circumstances we do, uh, we do meet ourselves in. First of all, what happened with the plane? Was it weather-based? Do we know? Well, essentially, the only information we have suggest that it was in fact weather-based. Essentially the situation is is that Chapecoense were due to be flying from Sao Paulo to Medellin in Colombia but due to problems with the plane, administrative problems with the plane that they wanted to take, they were not allowed to make the straight flight so they had to go to Bolivia first and change over there and essentially what we see from the radar information was that about five or ten minutes before the plane was due to land in Medellin the the plane began to circle waiting for authorization to land and fell in a mountainous valley just south of the city of Medellin 
and obviously the conditions of that area, especially being in the middle of the night in Colombia when the, the accident happened and being in this mountainous valley, it made the rescue operation really quite difficult. And they had to actually call off the, the rescue operation earlier this morning, but I have been informed that they have now uh, resumed are rescue you, operation. So. Are, are you based in Sao Paulo at the moment? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in Sao Paulo. Uh, I, was actually, I was actually in the stadium on Sunday for the last game of this Chapecoense squad, unfortunately, the last game for a lot of these players. Uh, when they played the Brazilian champions Palmeiras here in Sao Paulo and alongside a lot of these journalists who um, went straight from the stadium uh, to the airport and got on the plane with the rest of the squad. So yeah, it's uh, tragedy is very close, very close to home. Just about the squad themselves, uh, we were hearing this morning that there was maybe one player who'd, who'd survived. That was the rumour doing the rounds on this side of the Atlantic anyway. Just on about the squad itself, was it squad and family and hangers-on in this? Because it seems like a pretty big game they were going to play today. Yeah, well, the, the match in question was meant to be tomorrow evening, uh, which was the final of the Copa Sudamericana, which is South America's equivalent of like your like a Europa League equivalent, essentially. And so an absolutely huge game. But on that particular flight, it was only the players, journalists, and the and the coaching staff. There were no there were no wives, there were no families, all that sort of thing. They um, they stayed at home. But yeah, so there was a total of eighty one on board, and the latest information that we have is that three, well, in total we have six survivors, two of them from the flight crew, one journalist and three of the players. There was also originally a seventh survivor, one of the um, players' goalkeeper, Danilo, um, but he unfortunately, he died on his way to hospital. So we're down to three of the players from that 22-man squad are currently still alive at the moment, receiving treatment in hospital. That's absolutely awful. Uh, just on tributes, have you seen yourself the tributes coming in? I saw the first thing I saw this morning when I heard the news was uh, an Instagram post from David Luis saying that I'm, I'm totally lost for words. Is that the same sentiment from everybody? I'm lost for words. Yeah, it's well. I'm, we're seeing tributes coming in from all around the world. Uh, we had at. Real Madrid and Barcelona in their training sessions earlier today they held a minute silence before they began their training all of the clubs in Brazil are all banding together to show their support for Chapecoense and there have even there have even already been requests from these clubs to eliminate relegation from this for Chapecoense for the next few years and they're planning to give players on loan and all that all that sort of thing so that the club can can manage to rebuild over the next few years, which are sure to be really difficult. But yeah, every, everyone's just in shock at the moment. Uh, obviously, a, a tragic accident with such a such a massive loss of life. It's really it's quite hard to put it into words. You and Marshall, journalist in São Paulo, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. No problem. Good afternoon. Hopefully, we'll talk soon. Goodbye. Newswire is back after this short break. Welcome back to Newswire, it's 4.26. Thousands of students from across the country have been taking to the streets this afternoon to protest against a proposed income-linked third-level funding scheme. I, uh, earlier, the Union of Students in Ireland organised the march and their president, Annie Howey, delivered a speech to the assembled crowd outside the Dáil. 
introduction of fees in the UK, things have been a bit grim. 70% of the class of 2015 are expected to not fully pay back their loans. 47% of graduates had to move home because they cannot afford to keep up with their payments. Loans are brought in in the UK at £1,000 and they're now over £9,000. Do you think our government will bring in loans for €5,000 and leave them at that? They'll keep increasing them, increasing them, increasing them until they are an insurmountable burden around your necks. Howie there from the USI making a very impassioned uh, speech to the assembled crowd outside the doll this afternoon. Coming up, we'll have more uh, coverage of the USI march this The sound you just heard is a super hornet creating a sonic boom. However, most of us will never have come into contact with one. A project from Boom US, led by Richard Branson, plans to bring supersonic flight to the public. Jerry Byrne, journalist in science, business and aviation, joins me now to discuss the details of the project. Hi Jerry, how are you? 
I'm extremely well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Just the, the project itself, I'm looking through the ins and outs, and it seems extremely expensive. It, it is extraordinarily expensive, and I, I think Branson is not doing himself any favours by suggesting that he'll be able to fly people across the Atlantic for 2500 in the year 2023, I think, um, on his new uh, replacements for Concorde. Um, the, the aircraft are very small. Um, I think it's it's less than 40 seats, um, whereas the Concorde, which was the last supersonic aircraft we had, uh, was was sort of over 90 seats, I think, uh, certainly more than twice the number of seats that Branson is talking of offering. The economics of, of flight um, degrade rapidly when your seat numbers are very small, in other words, where the number of people likely to use the service are very small. Plus, you've got to add in the development costs of the aircraft. This could cost billions before it takes its first flight. Um, and I think even Branson is hedging, hedging his bets because he has said he would he will take an option, only an option. He hasn't made any firm orders, just an option on the first 10 aircraft that are built. The problem also with supersonic flying is that the aircraft will really only be able to fly over the ocean, um, like from London to New York or from Seattle to Tokyo or something like that, where most of your flight is over the ocean and you won't have residents complaining about son- sonic booms because it is the sonic boom, this, this v- very rapid thundering noise that you hear that is, is the biggest. It, it, it can break windows, you know, it, it, it's that severe. Uh, so much so that when Concorde was first mooted, uh, the Americans said that they wouldn't allow it to fly across the United States. And the original ambition for Concorde had been for it to fly, say, London to San Francisco in one hop. And Just... with the loss of the ability to fly over the land, um, the economics was degraded quite dramatically. Concorde never made any money. Concorde was effectively subsidised by the French and British governments, um, whose baby it had been. Um, and British Airways and Air France, for as long as they flew Concorde, they got money from the government. Just on Sonic Boom, you see when you when you I watched a couple of videos earlier in, in research and kind of to, to, to I don't know as a fan more than much else of mostly Hornets or Raptors or you know, really high-powered fighter jets creating sonic booms. Uh, what is it exactly? What what makes that sound? Well, it's basically the sound of the aircraft travelling. And when this reaches the ground where you are, when you hear it, you actually feel it as a shockwave 
almost as though you would get a shockwave from an explosion if somebody lets off a bomb and you're a street away, you'll still feel a shockwave from that. Just and that's on what the Concord on uh, Concord will be. There was a lot of safety fears after Concord went down about supersonic flight and is it, is it safe, whatever, about a noise or being unable to travel at, at high speeds over land. Is it is it safe? I'm sure Branson and co will put a lot of money into making sure it's safe. But you could say the same of British Airways and Air France of Concord and that didn't work. Well, the problem with Concord wasn't really so much that it wasn't safe. The, the Concord that was the Air France Concord that crashed um, in flames, I should add, um, had actually struck a bit of metal which had fallen off another plane on the runway. And that piece of metal was spun up into the air by the wheels and punctured a fuel tank. Now, the fuel tank could have been stronger, there's no doubt about that, but in you know, nearly 50 years of operation, um, that was the first serious accident uh, Concorde had, had encountered. So the, the, the concept of is, is safe enough Although Branson tends to uh, champion very lightweight uh, structures, um, his um, space flight project, um, again, basically a very, very light epoxy resin um, aircraft, um, crashed um, a few years back, uh, killing two pilots, um, which was uh, very, very unfortunate. Um, when you're dealing with new technology, and there will be a certain amount of new technology in this, even though he says in his press release um, that it is, you know, established technology, and they won't have to go to the admin to the regulators for too much uh, approval. They will have to go to the regulators for approval on every nut and bolt on the aircraft. There will be new technology. There's no doubt about it. Um, and you know we've seen that some of the new technology in building aircraft, like the building of the 787, the Boeing 787, which is the plastic fantastic, as it were, almost in all plastic aircraft, um, that has had serious problems with fire. I have. Fire I've seen that. All right. Yes. I've, I've seen that actually. All right. Just yeah. The the, the battery issues. Yeah. Thanks a million for joining us, Jerry. That's we're we're over time over time at the moment. Um, I'm just gonna pull a quote from Richard Branson uh, in the Guardian. He says, "This is supersonic passenger air travel. No bull. It's actually affordable. I want any people to go anywhere in the world in five hours for a hundred dollars." So we'll have to see how this plays out. I'm fascinated by the project, and I I can I'd imagine a lot of people into aviation are as well. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. You're very welcome. Today, the tax on sugary drinks will be introduced in 2018, April 2018. It was announced by Minister Michael Noonan today and it will be introduced in line with the UK's own sugar tax initiative. To find out what impact this will have on the company selling us these drinks, I'm joined by the Director of the Irish Beverages Council, Kevin McPartland. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Not at all. So we'll just get started. The sugar tax that was announced today, you couldn't really say it took many people by surprise. It wasn't confirmed by the papers now in the lead up to it, but uh, it was still something that was expected. Were the drinks industry as a whole prepared for such an announcement today? Well, you're right. It wasn't a surprise, but it's still shocking. Um, the reality is that, what we, you know, at a time when we have Donald Trump in the States and all these various different, you know, the Brexit referendum result, whatever, and when we talk about being in post-truth politics, this is the Irish example of post-truth politics because it ignores all of the evidence. This has been tried in a number of places around the world and it has a 100% failure rate in addressing public health objectives. So, we've, we, it, it, as I say, it's not a surprise. It was clear that the minister was, was going in this direction, but it's still shocking. 
Yeah, I, we saw the press release there, and you were quoted saying, you just said it there again, that there has been a 100% failure rate when you look at cases internationally. But surely, if we're looking at it just from a health perspective, would one not be able to say that there is going to be at least some sort of a reduction in the likes of obesity? Uh, when you know, Because when, uh, when you raise the price of something, surely there will be at least a, a minimum or a minimal uh, reduction in people consuming these drinks. Well, the, the phenomenon you're describing is uh, price, elastic, price elasticity. And um, the international research will show you that uh, sugar-sweetened drinks don't really uh, respond to, to, to price change in the same way as other products. And that's mainly because there are so many ways to buy the same product for a, for a lower price. So instead of buying uh, a can of, uh, a can of uh, mineral in the local shop, uh, you buy... Uh, buy it in a discount retailer instead of buying one at a time you buy a multi-pack or you buy a larger bottle or you know and some people will actually get involved in in cross-border trade so there are a number of ways to 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 reduce the price and still consume the same amount and that's what people do and 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 that's not speculation it's not me making it up this is the experience which has been uh, verified around the world so yes i mean if you implement a sugar tax very commonly there is a tiny reduction for a very short period of time. And, uh, but it has no a tiny reduction in consumption. But even that tiny reduction in consumption does nothing to impact on uh, obesity, on BMI, on diabetes. So we should really call this what it is. It's a stealth tax dressed up as a public health measure. Okay, so if we move away from the health aspect now, we're looking purely at, at business. You reckon that because of price elasticity and the cases abroad that people are still going to be buying these sugary drinks when we say that can it be put into numbers yet exactly how badly this will affect the drinks industry from a financial point of view or is it too early to tell yet well like any of these things we have done some modeling um the modeling would tell us that we should expect to lose about 60 million euros worth of sales per year if the sugar tax is applied as it, as it is expected at the levels that it's expected to be applied. So when you're talking about an industry that employs seven or, or provides employment for 7,000 people in this country directly and indirectly, you have to think, well, what does taking 60 million worth of revenue out of that do to the industry? And, and what we're talking about is Irish jobs. So you're, so you're saying you reckon it'll be kind of that secondary kind of effect, kind of more so than the actual people buying drinks? Precisely, you know, the, the, the combined impact of, of all the different ways that people will, re- will reduce their spend on the same amount of drinks is that it will, it will cost industry about 60 million euro okay. per year. Okay, so we're saying that now you've said now that this is a tax, and people that I've just been talking to, they've argued that, well, yes, there's no doubt that these sugary drinks are bad for your health, but then again, so was fast food. There was no additional excise duty on alcohol. Is there any feeling of resentment uh, in the industry that these sugary drinks are being singled out unfairly? It's not a feeling of resentment, but I th- certainly think that we would say to um, our colleagues in other parts of the food and drink sector, you know what happens next because you know various different people who've been calling for the implementation of a sugar tax have said this is the first step so if if sugar sweetened drinks are the first step what's the second third fourth fifth sixth step and i don't want to live in a country where taxes are decided by the government depending on what they want you to consume so if as i say if we're first then what's going to happen next is it going to be breakfast cereals is it going to be yogurt is it going to be uh red meat you know, is it going to be passed? Or what, you know, what's next? It, 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 it's that. Look, we have VAT on uh, what are regarded as, as kind of luxury foods, not the basic foods. And, uh, I mean, we also have VAT on some foods which are very much basic. And, you know, bottled water, for example, we're paying 
VAT on bottled water, which is which is at a level which is higher than anywhere else in Europe. So we're already being taxed on these products. Uh, it, you know, it's double taxation. It's a way of taking money out of the pocket of Irish consumers, taking money out of the pocket of Irish jobs and threatening, sorry, out of Irish companies and threatening Irish jobs for no public health benefit. Look, to be perfectly honest with you, Daniel, if, if, if this was going to work, if this was going to improve the health of the nation, I would say to my members, take a hit, you know, suck it up. But the reality is this will have zero impact on public health. And so all it is is a stealth tax.